This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, first, know that this conversation was meant to take place almost exactly one year ago. Fans of Rebecca Solnit and Carrie Brownstein were looking forward to seeing them in person in a great Seattle hall. The occasion was the publication of Solnit's memoir, Recollections of My Non-Existence. We all know certain circumstances kept the event from occurring. For not yet, but perhaps soon-to-be fans, Solnit is a writer, journalist, historian, and activist. The New Yorker's Katie Waldman writes, quote, To read Solnit is to brush up against emotions and intuitions you almost don't recognize, because language is so seldom considered the best way to approach them, unquote. Recollections starts when Solnit was 19 and living in San Francisco, a place that shaped her work and her feminism. There, she found the solitude she needed to write, as well as inspiration and kindred spirits among artists, the gay community, and punk culture. The memoir touches on common themes of her writing, racial injustice, indigenous rights, sexual harassment and exclusion, poverty, trauma, and, quote, how invisibility permits atrocity, unquote. Rebecca Solnit has written more than 20 books on feminism, Western and indigenous history, popular power, social change and insurrection, wandering and walking, hope and disaster. Carrie Brownstein is a famed riot girl, musician, actor, and author. She is a co-founder of the band Slater Kinney, a co-creator and star of the sketch comedy television series Portlandia, and the author of the memoir Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. This online event presented by the Elliott Bay Book Company, took place on March 14th. Fans around the world tuned in. Elliott Bay's Rick Simonson introduced the program. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. The book that Rebecca and Carrie will be talking about um, that, that Rebecca's published, in, and I, I think last year we were thinking about, it had been a few years since Rebecca had been to Seattle, and, and there had been a whole number of books um, between the last time she had been in Seattle, which might have been um, uh, around the time men explained things to me. I think you were in Seattle for Seattle Arts and Lectures, and I, I don't think it was so much a book tour, but it was the last, that book, but, um, and then in which um, there'd been a series of these other books of her essays um, uh, that had come out from uh, the wonderful Haymarket Press, um, and uh, and also uh, her first book for 
um, children, for younger, younger readers, also for older readers, uh, Cinderella Liberator. Um, these, along with her earlier, some earlier books uh, that, that are like this, book-length works, such as her historical work, uh, River of Shadows on Edward Moybridge, A Paradise Built in Hell, which had a particular readership this last year, um, and The Far Away and Nearby, again, two of these books um, about a, a relationship between prox proximity and distance and um, what the way connections are and aren't made. Um, Rebecca's a unique writer to my knowing of all the subjects she writes about and the way she writes about it, them both with the almost with a scholarly uh, sense of history, but also with a sense of the human and, and even the other than human um, awareness of, of what gets connected and related. The book, the, the memoir, Recollections of My Non-Existence, um, the, is, is the book that's probably the most personal of hers, although in some of the other books there are parts of her story in it. But this book, uh, even when I heard about it, and I think I, we got some advanced copies, and already I was giving those away to um, young women, especially um, coming into adult age, um, kind of coming out, having come out, out of the, the high school that period, but really begin to move into adult life because it's a book that speaks so beautifully and powerfully about um, what what that is, and in her case, finding her voice, but also navigating all the ways of really being, becoming herself and um, the situations where you say no to because you have to say no, but also have to say yes to certain things, certain moments and certain um, people that are truly helping you. And she gives credit and voice to all those situations uh, and in doing so. And um, it's just a memorable moving book. I'm going to say less about it now because you're going to hear much more of, of it. Uh, Rebecca will do a little bit of reading and then Carrie Brownstein, who uh, we, some of us are even more related to books than some of the other pieces, but we, her 2015 memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern, modern Girl, um, which she did a great reading for in Seattle at the Neptune Theater, is a book still very much um, uh, read and kept in readers' hands with um, her account of her growing up and finding her voice um, as a founding member of Slater Kinney and, um, and you know, just that her part of music and where voice and music are and, and the, the work she's done, which has included obviously the work on Portlandia and she's doing other projects as well, which may come up in the course of this, but we're uh, delighted. They have a lot of common interests and I think you'll be enjoying this as this goes on. And meanwhile, you are in the great and capable hands of Rebecca Solnit and Carrie Brownstein, Please give your good attention and welcome to them now and take it away, Rebecca and Carrie. Thank you both. Thank you, Rick. Uh, well, I know, um, Rebecca, that you wanted to start with uh, reading something from uh, from the memoir. Well, that's optional. Wanna... We just, we, it was an inconclusive <laughs> discussion. We could start was, anywhere. Was. And I just want to really start by saying I am so psyched to do this with you. And um, let's just gallop along. And do you think I should read something? Um, well, first of all, I want to reiterate that I also am so excited um, to talk to you. I feel like for those who don't know, Rebecca and I have been sitting in this room for a whole year, just waiting for you guys to be able to join us uh, since we were supposed to do this talk. Um, so, yeah, I think just just in case people haven't read this or even if they have, it's still nice okay. to hear, um, hear your voice. Um, and uh, hear you reading your work. Okay, here we go. 
One day long ago, I looked at myself as I faced a full-length mirror and saw my image darken and soften and then seem to retreat as though I was vanishing from the world. Rather than that, my mind was shutting it out. I steadied myself on the doorframe just across the hall from the mirror, and then my legs crumpled under me. My own image drifted away from me into darkness, as though I was only a ghost fading even from my own sight. I blacked out occasionally and had dizzy spells often in those days because I was a scrawny, low blood blood sugar, low blood pressure um, teenage girl. But this time was memorable because it appeared as though it wasn't that the world was vanishing from my consciousness, but that I was vanishing from the world. I was the person who was vanishing and the disembodied person watching her from a distance, both and neither. In those days, I was trying to disappear and to appear, trying to be safe and to be someone, and those agendas were often at odds with each other. And I was watching myself to see if I could read in the mirror what I could be, and whether I was good enough, and whether all the things I'd been told about myself were true. To be a young woman is to face your own annihilation in innumerable ways, or to flee it, or the knowledge of it, or all these things at once. The death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world, said Edgar Allan Poe, who must not have imagined it from the perspective of women who prefer to live. I was trying to not be the subject of someone else's poetry and not to get killed. I was trying to find a poetics of my own with no maps, no guides, not much to go on. They might have been out there, but I hadn't located them yet. The struggle to find a poetry in which your survival rather than your defeat is celebrated, perhaps to find your own voice to insist upon that, or at least to find a way to survive amidst an ethos that relishes your erasures and failures, is work that many and perhaps most young women have to do. In those early years, I did not do it particularly well or clearly, but I did it ferociously. Wonderful. Um, I, I love that intro and so many of the words that you bring up there have been um, ringing around, I think a lot of our, our heads this past year, uh, banishing, annihilation, uh, the subject of someone else's poetry. Um, You know, during this pandemic, there has been a lot of reckoning with the annihilation and banishing of forms and normalcy and structure. And um, I want to talk a lot about your memoir, but I think the elephant in the room is that, you know, since we were supposed to talk, the pandemic happened. I was wondering just on a personal level, what it was like to put out work at a time when there was such a trespass on the imagination and psyche of your audience. And if, um, was it any, did you have any moments of doubt or consternation um, after kind of writing this book that sort of wrestled with that and came out on the other side? Um, Did you, did it put you ill at ease or off balance in a way that was unexpected? Oh, there's so many ways to answer that. I'll layer a few of them. One of which is I often call violence against women a pandemic that's been going on for centuries. And so I feel like it's always a good time to talk about it. Another is that the book officially, I think the pub date was March 9th or 10th last year. And I knew because I hang out with medical people um, for various reasons. You know, I know some amazing people 
who follow that stuff. And so I was pretty convinced by late February that the tour was going to have to be canceled and was tracking it and trying to give my publishers heads up and trying to convince them that, no, I'm not a hypochondriac. It would be socially irresponsible to go from city to city as a vector, you know, you know, living in public and assemble large crowds in all those cities. And so I did one event um, with Leslie Jameson, who very soon she was in New York city and, you know, and that was the night I told them we're pulling the plug because uh, I, I was just sort of not getting traction. But what was also interesting is, and then I kind of left the book alone. It was out there. People were buying it and things like that. I did some events, my book about disaster and how people respond to disaster, a paradise built in hell suddenly became something people wanted me to talk about. So I did a bunch of stuff like that. It was funny. It felt like a six weeks or two months before I got to retreat into what I was kind of looking forward to, which is that, um, you know, for somebody who has enough, you know, wasn't becoming financially bereft, wasn't a frontline worker, didn't have small kids. You know, I was one of the super lucky people who's, life during the pandemic was as, as good as it gets, but I, I, I stayed so busy. And then the other thing I did because I'm an aunt and a great aunt. And I at first thought like, Oh, school is canceled. I can help my family with the kids, which is basically my, my like, can I hang out with your kids now? And then of course I couldn't because of the pandemic. So I started telling fairy tales online because fairy tales, which in a funny way are like this book because most of the great fairy tales are about somebody who somehow is bereft, abandoned, devalued, you know, um, stranded, disconnected, having to find their way and their connections and their role and their people in the world. And um, so I spent a month telling fairy tales. First, I did it five days a week, and then I did it uh, two days a week and ended up recording 13 like hour long storytelling sessions, building a little set for each one. And I got, and it was really interesting to, cause also in fairy tales, like horror, it felt like for kids, you know, suddenly school is canceled and you can't touch people and you can't do things and stuff. Fairy tales are full of these horrible ordeals and arbitrary des you know, um, sort of destinies and things. And in the 12 swans, which is one of my favorite um, an evil stepmother turns a girl's 12 brothers into swans and to, tur and to turn them back into humans. Some friendly soul tells her all she has to do is knit 12 sweaters for them out of stinging nettles while remaining mute the whole time she's knitting, in the course of which she, she marries a king and is mistaken for a witch but can't defend herself because she's busy knitting sweaters out of nettles. And knitting sweaters out of nettles is about as arbitrary as it gets for turning your brothers back into humans. And, um, you know, actually, I'll just I'll just throw it in because I'm because digression is actually my middle name. In the end, she has 11 and a half sweaters finished is about to be burned as a witch is knitting on the cart, hauling her to the fire. And the 12 swans swoop down and she throws these garments over them. But the youngest brother gets a sweater with an unfinished arm. So he goes through life with one arm that's actually a swan's wing, which the novelist Michael Cunningham wrote a very entertaining short story about the kind of sexy kind of weird misfit dude with a wing but I digress so that was kind of how like you know so I was kind of okay like I was sad to not hang out with you and all these amazing people on my tour and you know my publisher the publicist had worked so hard on the tour here and in the UK and 
but I also knew, you know, it was what we had to do. And there was so much to think about that I was, I was, it wasn't like, oh, my poor baby. You know, I was like, okay, let's do this next thing that feels so important to do, meeting the disaster and figuring out how to take care of each other in it. Did you, one one thing that's early on in your book, you talk about forks in the road and as you, you know, embrace and come into adulthood that, you know, some like that a lot of the forks in the road were, were behind, are behind you. And I'm just wondering, did that change did your sense of possibility or unpredictability this, this past year? Or do you feel like you're always open to that? Cause that when I was reading that, it, it does feel like, Oh, when you're young, yes, you're kind of open and you be, we become ossified and set in our ways. And were, were there ways that the, the pandemic shook you from some of that potential calcification that we are always trying to, I guess, rid ourselves of? I think the right answer would be yes, but I'm trying to think about what, and there's, and I joke that I've been sheltering in place since 1988 when I left my last job, thinking that I was, you know, I took a temporary job that turned into unemployment, that turned into my first book, that turned into not getting around to finding another job over the last 33 years and um, writing some more books. So it, you know, it was really interesting you know, in my in a paradise built in hell, my book about disasters, I wrote about how a, a disaster shows you what's strong and what's weak in your society. And there's a way I was disrupted by four more by four years of Trump, and the pandemic was what it was in this country because we had a viciously destructive, incompetent, and deranged leadership. That and you know, it could have been radically different if it had happened, you know, under sane leadership. So I had been disrupted all along and I feel like that sort of sort of ended to some extent on January 20th by, you know, Trump, Trump was a trauma and a crisis. And I say I had informational hypervigilance, any horrible and dangerous and ugly thing could happen at any moment. And I think we're all like, Oh, I went, you know, I took a walk. I better come home and check Twitter to see what exploded while I was away for an hour. So I spent the last four years, like a lot of people really absorbed with, you know, kind of news on unfolding by the hour and not even the news cycle where the White House kind of doesn't do things on weekends and and on Twitter at three in the morning and stuff. You know, we didn't have that. So there was that. So there was so in a way we were already so disrupted and I was so engaged. And I also felt a personal responsibility in a den mother kind of way, like we are going to get through this. We are not going to cave in. We are not going to surrender. And I'm going to, you know, Jesse Jackson style, keep hope alive and, you know, figure out how to, you know, encourage people to look at the ways we can resist that are meaningful, look at the forms of solidarity. So in a way, in a way that the pandemic didn't disrupt me because I was already so disrupted by Trump, you know, I, I was willingly politically engaged before that, but it felt really different in those four years. And so much of what we're doing wasn't constructive. Oh, let's make the world better. It's like, let's keep them from torturing children and trans kids. And let's um, defend these things that have been built over the last five and 50 and 500 years and not go back to their medieval crusades against, you know, witches and infidels. 
Yeah, no, it is definitely a privilege to be able to tune out. I think yeah. like the news and I realize that hypervigilance that some people have to, depending on who they are, have to maintain at all times. But I think um, for many Americans, we did tune out some news <laughs> before Trump. And in the last couple months since Biden was elected, I have found myself able to go a day without reading something or having my body, you know, be in a state of shock or stress. Did you find, um, did you have distractions though during the last, like what did you turn to in a frivolous way? Because one thing I was thinking about when I was writing, reading your memoir is like you said that there, it doesn't mention Trump. I mean, I know that the underbelly of, of violence, you know, persists um, and you can't divorce him from the narrative, but he's not there. And nor is, you know, some of the other stuff you write, write about um, for the guardian or for other publications or in some of your other books, was there a freedom in writing about something that yes, is political, but also is just your life? Like how, like, was the writing process different for you? And it was interesting because it felt like in a way I would like to write a coda to all my feminist work, but since it's not over, I'm going to, I'm going to keep writing about feminism until it's unnecessary because we've realized all our goals, which I will not live to see. So I'm just going to keep writing. But there was a sense with this book that I've been writing about feminism and or about, you know, gender violence in a fairly objective way for the most part, writing about stories that were in the news, public, you know, the kind of public things that we argue about, you know, Weinstein and rape culture and, campus rape and statistics and how the stories get told and things like that. And I realized that what I had never really adequately conveyed is what does it mean to be a young woman in a world that turns a blind eye to the real destruction of young women by misogynist violence, but also kind of fantasizes and celebrates it in entertainment from pop songs and films and uh, novels, etc. What does it mean? You know, what does it do physically, psychically, to live in a world where you're told that it's your job to avoid getting killed? It's your job to constantly do all these things to avoid getting killed, but we're also going to treat you like you're crazy if you mention that you're in a world where people want to kill you. You know, and something we're seeing now. Um, in Britain, after Sarah Everard was killed by a policeman, women there are protesting about the way that the burden of preventing male violence is, with this as with so many things, kind of thrust upon women to limit limit their freedoms and um, constantly imagine, da- you know, imagine danger to avoid it. Like, like, oh, I can't do this. I can't wear that. I can't say this. I can't go there. I can't speak up, I can't participate, I can't demand, I can't ridicule, I can't laugh, I can't, you know, and this, and this, and that's so much of what the title is about is uh, Recollections of My Non-Existence is the way that either you actually get annihilated through violence or you annihilate yourself in order to not be a target of violence somehow and, um, you know, or you get erased um, as a person with a voice in all those ways. So I wanted to kind of use myself as a specimen to convey what it's like to live, 
not with one terrible thing that's happened to you, which is often used and is not the fault of the people who've written those memoirs about rape and near murder and stuff, but is often used to say, well, if you weren't raped or nearly murdered, then nothing happened to you to say that even if it doesn't get you, it gets you that to live in live when women around you are being destroyed, living live and, you know, where you turn on the TV and there's a very good chance you're writing something where a woman's rape, murder or both will be sort of eroticized and rendered titillating and kind of fun. You know, I think of David Lynch's despicable um, Twin Peaks um, with that 15 year old girl wrapped in plastic on the lake lake shores, this kind of recurrent image. And, um, you know, so I really wanted to convey all that and uh, to round out what I'd been doing all along and say some things that I felt like had been left out in the conversation, which has tended to either deal with it in a very neutral, objective, factual, journalistic way, or to suggest there are very bad things that happen to some of us, but the rest of us, you know, very bad things didn't happen to, which I think, you know, I saw something recently that said, oh, one in three women is a, you know, is, I'm trying to think what it was, I think is is like a victim of intimate personal, intimate personal violence. Is that interpersonal? I forget how, what euphemistic um, term it was for being beat up usually by a male partner or former partner. And I was like, yeah, you know, three out of three women are affected by that, by, by male violence. There isn't, you know, this whole way of describing it, you know, kind of counts the rest of us out. Um, if, you know, uh, and counts out the indirect impact. So I wanted to convey that as part of it. And also to connect my attempt to become a writer, which is to be somebody who has a voice and a claim as a nonfiction writer to objective information and uh, the capacity to handle it about how being a young woman is being treated as someone unqualified to speak because we're overwrought, emotional, subjective, uh, unreliable, vindictive, all these terms that convey that, you know, people shouldn't listen to young women because they're not reliable narrators and, uh, you know, which I ran into early in my publishing career too. And uh, just part of why I wove those stories in is to suggest the seamlessness of it, the same forces that may say you you don't know what you're talking about when you say some very respectable person did a horrible thing that may be sexual or may not, will also say that you don't really know what you're talking. And this is what my essay, Men Explain Things, was about is, you know, what happens when you're told when you're supposed to only listen, when you're treated as incompetent to speak, sometimes it's funny and ridiculous. Sometimes women are trying to say, this guy is trying to murder me and people are being like, Oh, she's so crazy. She's why you know, why would she say that? And then she gets killed. I, I'm curious as you, as you talk, so much of the, the book deals with your, your younger self and, yeah. and bodies explored in youth but less so in adulthood in your memoir. And it's um, usually it seems like the culture is sort of the opposite. I mean, even though there's a sort of prurience and, and definitely out the outside world obsesses about youthful bodies, often in memoir, um, women tend to talk about their bodies as they change or deteriorate or atrophy. And I was wondering if that was on purpose or if the body, as you became ascendant as a writer, 
the body it does the work become the body you know what I mean like I was just curious how you decided to sort of stop that assessment age-wise in in the writing and I I have no interest in that whole oh body as trophy that loses you know loses value according to the standards of a horrible culture etc and you know and there was that that I think for really young women, there's so much pressure to be attractive. At the same time, if you're too attractive, you're seen as because she's sexy, she must be stupid. Because she wore a mini dress, she invited, you know, this guy to rape her. And so that tightrope, they they walk, because, you know, I'm pretty far from that phase of life, between the punishments for not being attractive and the punishments for being attractive, I think is kind of monstrous you know, at least in heterosexuality, um, the monstrosity that is heterosexuality, you know, and just, and so I really wanted to talk about that period. And there's a way, I, one of the things that's great about getting older is just the, the kind of no fucks left to give that, yeah, your body doesn't necessarily meet the cultural standards and also fuck the cultural standards and they don't affect me anymore. I actually had a really funny experience because you were in a punk rock band, I will, I will, you know, and or of that era, I will narrate this. In the early '90s, I went to the Lower Hate, which was much hipper than the part than where I lived, just to like go out to breakfast or something. And like, I was very punk rock. I wore a lot of black from this like 1977 on, and I just remember looking around and everyone was kind of dressed like Kurt Cobain. I was in my early 30s, and I thought like oh, fashion has changed while I wasn't paying attention. And I had this brief, do I need to make an adjustment? And this is a sign of like, no longer being young. I was like, eh, whatever. And continued to wear my, you know, my simple, well-coordinated black goes well with black outfits. And, um, you know, so, so, but I didn't, you know, I didn't really write about my body much as a physical, you know, you know, I'm trying to think of as a physical entity so much as a a site of vulnerability in the ways that I had learned to be disembodied, um, you know, and kind of withdraw and disconnect from being in a body, which I think is not unusual for young women that at the point you're most sexualized, you're least present in your body, partly because they haven't really let it belong to you. They're so eager for it. You know, you're so inculcated uh, to make it something for other people that you almost, you don't get a lot of instruction unless you read Peggy Orenstein, um, who wrote Girls and Sex to make it, you know, or a few other, you know, sex positive feminist things. You know, you, your body kind of, I had a, a woman student from a very violent family who just said this line in the 90s, our bodies were not our own. And I think, you know, that description, I opened the book with this and that watching myself disappear in the mirror, because it felt like that's what it was like, that I was, I was both a dispassionate observer, because you learn to observe yourself as a woman. And I was the person, you know, I was, and I was the image who was disappearing. So that disassociate, disassociatedness, I think, is really kind of chronic for young women, that second guessing, you know, which I think in some ways has only gotten worse where it's like, you know, now, now that there's a lot of porn and stuff and there's even more weird and exacting standards 
along with selfies and things like that about how you're supposed to look and be and perform. So, so I wanted to convey that and some of it was about body, but some of it was about disembodiment. Yeah, for sure. And I should say, I was sort of relieved to, to not read yeah. a memoir that was lamenting the change. Cause that seems to just give power to all the sort of standards that we're trying to sort of reject an issue. But I, I was wondering, you know, some, a very culturally relevant antidote, I think to a sense of disembodiment or a sense of disempowerment is are these notions of wellness, which you also never touch upon because it seems like a very different kind of uh, corrective or self to what you, um, write about but I was curious because that seems like it's kind of you know you're sort of given two options one is like to reject but the other is to embrace sort of wellness as a way to kind of save yourself or to avoid some of these um you know disassociative feelings and I'm I'm wondering you know where you see that in terms of how it plays into normalcy or even if it's kind of coming down still from the same kind of patriarchal expectations yeah, and the the wellness industry, I think, is very much like the beauty industry. It tells you you're not good enough, and through consuming the right things, you can be better. And, and you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I've been around food, you know, all kinds of weird health food quacks and cults my whole life. And it is interesting how much there's this idea that we fell from grace, you know, that there was a kind of dietary garden of Eden, whether it was all raw food or vegan or you know, whatever. We even had the breath, breath, breatharians um, in the Bay Area claiming that, you know, that if you were spiritual enough, you didn't actually need food. And the leader of whom was eventually found um, walking out of a McDonald's with a full bag. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I am enough of a Californian to like my farmer's markets and organic produce and eat well. But I don't feel that that kind of stuff which also sees us all as sick. You know, it's like the human condition is essentially a patient and everything you do will be medicine for your sickness. I think that's actually really destructive. And I've seen a lot of people treat themselves in weird ways for imaginary illnesses or quack cures for undiagnosed real symptoms and things. But I think also what I was experiencing was a psychic disorder, which was misogyny. And one of the things I felt was really important is to not write a conventional memoir. Somewhere in the book, I say conventional memoirs are overcoming narratives where, where through some strength of character and change of life, you somehow made your life okay, even though you had alcoholic parents or an abusive spouse or, you know, suffered some terrible thing. And that violence against women is not something I could adjust to either by how I live my life or how I organize my psyche. The only pop appropriate response to it was to try to change the world. And so really, rather than wellness, I think a lot of what this book talks about is community, that learning from the communities that were around me and living in a Black neighborhood, a big part of the book is moving into the apartment I had for 25 years that Mr. Young, the black building manager invited me into as, as the first white person in the building in that black neighborhood in 17 years. And, um, but also then joining activist communities and learning from 
um, those communities eventually joining the Western Shoshone Defense Project, a native uh, resistance project led by Mary and Carrie Dan. And Carrie, Carrie just passed away earlier this year. There were these extraordinary, like true matriarchs who felt to me like women who had never been subjugated. They weren't resisting it like a lot of women are where you're pushing against something that's been pushing down on you forever. They were, they were like queens. And so I felt that doing the activism, which is always seen as a kind of eat your broccoli thing of virtue, was bringing me into spaces that were relatively safe um, in that, you know, there were still creepy, harassy guys and always in the early days of anti-nuclear activism, lots of hippie dudes who wanted free hugs. And, um, you know, but, um, but there was a kind of valor and idealism and spirit and extraordinary people that I came into connection with. There's a story about the Buddha where, oh, I'm forgetting the name. I'm sure someone will put in comments, which I do not, I cannot read while staying on track, but uh, where his, I think it's Ananda, his great age says, you know, is Sangha, the community, an important part of the practice. And the Buddha says, it's a whole practice. You know, there's a way in which I think finding people who valued me, who taught me how to be free and dignified and strong and okay with being those things. And, um, you know, and another part of the book that's really important is the queer community. I feel infinitely lucky to have spent my formative years in San Francisco. I don't know where queerness is located other than everywhere as it should be now. But, you know, it was such a refuge city. It had a very dense, very out queer population compared to everyone else. And from about 13 or 14 on, I grew up around gay men who not only taught me that men don't have to be the monsters, a lot of heterosexual men are, but had a kind of wit and subtlety and perceptiveness, a kind of linguistic playfulness and, and, uh, you know, creativity that was so encouraging. And that was also one of the spaces in which I felt really free and encouraged to become. And I feel like I learned how to watch movies by sitting in the dark at the Castro Theater and listening to gay men sigh and moan and snicker and hiss and whistle and just make all these comments on like the, the incredible gay subtext of the you know, cowboy movies and Ginger Rogers movies and everything else. And, uh, you know, and so really, I think, you know, and this is the fairy tale quest, you know, your wicked stepmother has isolated you. Who are your people? Where do you belong? And this book is fairy tale like, and it's partly about finding my people and finding them also by writing and all the people writing brought me to. And I think that's a kind of wellness that isn't for sale and commodifiable in the same way. And, um, you know, but that, that, and we talk about it now about the importance of being connected of friendship and things like that. But I think that that has been what saved me. And it's been a funny thing because writing is in some ways about how much can you stand to stay home alone, which I can stand a lot of, but it has brought, it has connected me to people. And a lot of the people I know, I know one way or another because somehow writing brought me in touch with them and that's been kind of great it's you you bring up queer culture and and one thing I was thinking about and you know as you're saying a lot of uh, the narrative in this book is about you know from moving from margin to center and appreciating you know what's in the margins and um 
and non-existence both as, you know, at, sometimes as a form of freedom. And um, it, it feels like what we're asking for is our, you know, agency over our own doing or undoing yeah. instead of having it being imposed upon us. And I'm just wondering how notions in our kind of contemporary culture, notions of margin of center have been collapsed because it, it feels like no one wants to be on the outside anymore, um, you know, and embracing difference, which is, you know, good. It usually, it, it often ends up um, as kind of accepting otherness as normal. And I'm just wondering what do we lose, if anything, by having normalization as the end goal? Yeah, well, I've certainly heard a lot of older gay men be um, unenthused about same-sex marriage and the idea of queer people also becoming sort of bougie suburban couples. And because so much of the queer culture that was in the city was also as somebody who hasn't married and have or had kids, queer family was a really great model for me of these other relationships are really important. And you don't have to put all your eggs in one basket to get very countrified in my epithets that, uh, you know, and some of that has dispersed as marriage, ha- you know, has become more or less universe, almost universally available. It's interesting because on the one hand, I don't want to celebrate marginalization, involuntary marginalization and all the oppression and erasure that can come with it. On the other hand, one of the things I would notice, and I've spent a lot of time in other parts of the West in Reno and Albuquerque and things like that, is that you'll sometimes see these cultures where we're the only 50 people who care about climate change in our conservative community. We're the, we're the only queer people like these. And my first book was actually about the visual artists were part of beat culture here in the Bay Area in the 50s. And there is a sense of people really kind of taking care of each other because they know that there's nobody's going to, you know, there's a kind of closeness and it can be insular and it has its limits, but I do see something really admirable both in the small and small cultures where that where the people deeply value each other living in a, in a medium sized city. I've seen people really, it's really easy to blow people off because there's lots more where they came from and also, but also to be so sectarian. And I joke the Bay area is a place where the vegans scorn the vegetarians you know, where you can be super princessy about um, who you hang out with. And so in rural places, I both see people really cherishing the, the people they have important things in common with, and also, you know, finding the capacity to interact with um, people they don't have a lot in common with, which you can also lose. And I used to say Berkeley and Lynchburg, Virginia, have a lot in common as these kind of homogenous places where people don't have to meet you know, and you know, Seattle and Portland are kind of like that too. You don't necessarily have to hang out with conservatives and things like that. And so, so I have really mixed feelings about it. And uh, you know, of that intensity and that connectedness. You know, and I know there are times and places where people just to have just to be part of a marginal group, whether it's an ethnic group or sexual orientation, you know, or some other category, gives you a kind of membership that's all the stronger because you don't have enough membership in the mainstream, you know, but on the other hand, I'm a straight white girl. So, you know, I won't tell anyone else to, I have relatively easy entree to almost everything. So I don't want to celebrate people being marginalized, 
but I do want to celebrate that close-knitness and that mutual aid and support that I think can be really powerful and also really generative, whether it's like um, drag culture or um, some of the, you know, some of the other subcultures that have really created extraordinary things. So I don't know how those things exist if they're wholly voluntary, you know, and, to, and in a way punk rock was kind of voluntary is about mostly white kids making themselves look and dress different, certainly in the beginning. And um, because, because they didn't want to be part of the mainstream because the name mainstream seemed so rotten, sold out to use one of our favorite phrases, compromised or just, you know, somehow dilute and bland. Yeah. I think it's just an interesting time as, as, as the, the sort of collapsing of, of language and, you know, people on the left and right, people on the right starting to borrow, you know, language yeah. from the left. And it's, so it's just, to lose sense of sort of where the center is, I think is is a disorienting kind of ontological thing that we don't have to go into, but I, something that I think about well, a lot, maybe. I guess. Then maybe I misunderstood it. It is interesting with things like anti-vaxxing going across mm-hmm. the spectrum from, mm-hmm. from Montessori hippie mamas to right-wing homeschoolers and stuff. And there's a certain kind of white guy who's supposed to be one of the leaders of the left and are given platforms who are clearly right-wing misogynists and usually racists. But, but this, yeah, but it's also an interesting moment because the center, Biden was referring to it with inauguration stuff of the center, as and Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times was, of the center as, as like the place of truth and normalcy and things. And so often that's kind of bullshit. You know, if I think the world is round and you think the world is flat, you know, we're not going to go for a kind of oblong disc as that, you know, that's what centrism is as well. The world is sort of hemispherical, you know, there, we don't need to find a common ground between Nazis and anti-Nazis, you know, tra- uh, transphobia and trans people. So there's also a way in which the center has been a reference point of kind of sanity, normalcy and stuff, but it's often about what, works for you know it's the status quo and the people who benefit from the status quo want to uphold it and the people who don't benefit from the status quo aren't served by it you know and in a time of extremism the center is often a kind of compromise that was extremism that you know like all that bullshit trying to understand white supremacists and that sort of you know, that the New York Times and various other outlets did that kind of, you know, oversympathize with them in the name of humanizing them. And it's like, they've chosen to be inhuman. They want to harm other people because of their religious or ethnic, uh, you know, or sexual orientation. And like, there's, that's absolutely inhumane. We in a way need to inhumanize them by seeing the viciousness and the will to violence and the actual violence behind that. So, so I think that the center itself has become deeply problematic in this moment. And one of the great things that's also happened is that the democratic party has moved way to the left over the last few years. And it's really interesting seeing Biden as this old white guy be so much more progressive than Obama and wondering whether that's who he always was, but also feeling like this era is 
both inviting and demanding so much, much more progressive policy around economic justice and everything else, racial justice, and looking at that 2008 to 2012 period, or two, uh, 2008 to 2016, it looks pretty, you know, there was Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and some very powerful things, but, you know, um, it looks so milk toast and mild compared to where a lot of the Democratic Party is now. And hearing Pelosi and Schumer say things that really started with AOC or Maxine Waters or Barbara Lee or Jamel. Oh, oh I'm, I'm going to start forgetting all the new people in the squad. But, it, you know, just having our first Native American congresswomen and, you know, all these, all these, it's changed so much. So I think that I wonder if the center is an old idea that doesn't serve us anymore. You know, it's also interesting as the centrality of certain structures like the New York times gets replaced by multiple information sources and things like that. Well, I do think as a, as sort of a paradigm or model, it might be old fashioned. One thing you write about a lot in your book is notion of collage, which is, you know, to make, you know, you say, you know, it, it, make something new without hiding traces of the old. And I, I like thinking of the ways that we're trying to sort of come together and acknowledge the brokenness, acknowledge the sadness, um, the fault lines uh, to see them and to not, you know, the center all, to me also is married with this idea of like purity, that something in the center is also pure and anything outside of it um, lacks ethics or is, Im- you know, is impure. And so I, I love, I guess, the way that you you talk about collage in terms of identity and in terms of a path forward, um, because it, it it acknowledges the way that we we borrow and that we learn and that we also reject. And so, yeah, perhaps center is is old. I guess I'll end with a question before we go to Q and A. I'm curious, thinking about you know young women in particular, and there's you know in I, I know that, you know, collectivism versus individualism, and then there's sort of this balance, you know, and, and being an author, sometimes being a, you know, a protagonist in your own life sort of takes kind of a selfishness, whereas, you know, collectivism, activism take a selflessness. And I'm just wondering what your advice is or where you found that, that balance between ownership and just saying like, no, I'm good. I'm good at this. I do a good job. And, you know, like, or I'm that kind of just self-aggrandizement versus, cause you don't want the op, you know, self-effacement. And so I'm just, I just am curious if that path you think you have to go through that stage of just being like, I'm the best. And then you can come out the other side and eventually be like, okay, we're all okay. You know what I mean? Like we're all the best. I'm just wondering sort of your process. And if you, sort of allow in youth to just that kind of boastfulness and you think it's part of the trajectory. And one of the things that I think in a way made my trajectory as a writer relatively easy is there are some ways in which I was so isolated and so blessedly before social media where you're constantly being judged and critiqued, but also herded into the norm. You get rewarded for saying things people are comfortable with and being the kind of young woman people want young women to be, and you get punished for not being that. And, um, but in some ways I was so isolated. I did what I wanted to do. 
and was relatively removed from the people who had told me I couldn't, I shouldn't, I wasn't qualified, etc. And, you know, and some of my, a lot of my early work didn't get very many reviews. So I didn't get, it didn't get a lot of attention, but it also didn't, you know, so it didn't get positive attention, but also didn't get negative attention of people sort of like trying to put me back in my place and stuff. I got plenty of it verbally. And, you know, I recount people in publishing kind of refusing to hear me and the kind of disorienting experience of being somebody who's actually writing history but the publishers who are publishing it can't actually hear you, won't believe you when you say something's happening. And, uh, you know, so, and that, that process actually gave me a kind of confidence. And I write in men explain things about how I was around 40 when finally I had that gaslighting experience. I had a lot as a young woman where, uh, you know, two occasions where men did really shitty things. And I said, Hey, that thing you did was really shitty. And they said, oh, no, I didn't do it. I didn't say it. You are an unreliable witness. Um, You shouldn't trust your own memory. This is, you know, I never said that thing. I never did that thing, blah, blah, blah. And it was really interesting. It was was around the time my book Wanderlust came out, which I think was my fourth book. And I just had this kind of, I write history. I seem to be pretty good at figuring out facts and collecting them and remembering them and organizing them. You know, I've been trained as a journalist. I'm not going to let, you know, I'm not going to let these guys disrupt my own capacity to bear witness. So there's a kind of confidence, but I also, I kind of love creative work because it's not like a race where somebody's actually fastest, um, you know, there are there are all these stupid prizes where which are often very normative. And, you know, even the categories, a book that doesn't fit into the categories in which awards are given, you know, isn't eligible for awards. But but mostly, you know, I feel like I, I feel like I'm doing what I'm doing and it's not really competing with what anybody else is doing. I also spend a lot of time around visual artists. And which was great because it wasn't, they didn't have any competitiveness with me, which I find competitiveness very anxiety producing. And so being around people in different media was really helpful that way. So there's a funny way, I don't know whether I was intensely avoiding it or just was lucky enough not to be around it, but no, I wasn't really, you know, like I had to pitch books to people and stuff and then, you know, and, and, make the case that this subject was important when I went and talked about the books, but I never felt like I had to say, I'm awesome. I'm amazing. I'm brilliant. You know, you know, I did occasionally have to like apply for grants and here's why you should give me money. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I just, I just feel lucky to have in some ways been so isolated that I wasn't in those kind of creative writing program environments where, you know, where praise and punishment are being meted out and everybody's critique is raining down on you and things like that. And isolation, I think, had a lot of upsides for me in those early years. And then I got, you know, then I got a lot more connected to a lot more people. But at that point, I was already doing, I was already pretty clear on what I was here to do. And that wasn't going to be disrupted either by positive or negative feedback. So. Okay, one I'm, more question. I don't want to ask you that, but uh... <laughs> no, I, I guess I do have one more question, and maybe it's a one-word answer. But why do people love complex female characters but hate women? 
Oh God, this is, this is, and the first thing that springs to mind is how people, how, how the white people of the 19th century loved Native Americans as iconography, but hated them as actual people who owned most of the continent and had rights and needs and et cetera. It's, um, and I see so many, there's so many horrible female characters and, um, you know, and so much stuff that's still male oriented where and something that happens to me a lot now is I start watching something and I'm like, what, or reading something. I'm like, why is it centered on this person? The first time it happened really powerfully was Daniel Day Lewis in Phantom Thread. And I thought, here's a movie full of all these working class seamstresses and interesting women. And we're going to follow a really boring, deadly, mean guy for what was probably an hour and a half, but felt like 30 years and uh, like last night, we tried to watch this thing, Cherry, which is following a guy who's a bank robber. And he goes, this white guy, and it's clear like, oh, here is a troubled white man we are supposed to care about. And he points his gun at a black bank teller who says, and asks her her name. And I just turned to my partner. I said, I want to see a movie about her. She's so much more interesting. So I feel like wow. there is some, you know, we do get some female character, female protagonists, but we still get all this stuff centered elsewhere. I actually also tried to watch Groundhog Day again, which I remembered as a very fun movie and a great allegory for everything ever, especially the pandemic. And um, and the character, what's his name, plays is such an asshole and so unattractive in every possible way and such an egomaniac that I just had that. I can't believe we were all conned into caring about endless male characters like this. And of course, and I had somehow thought he was becoming a better person in my memory of the movie, but he's just trying to get laid and the movie. And it's like fate itself has given an asshole innumerable chances to learn how to trick a woman to get into her pants. And as telling us nothing about the woman, except that she's very pleasant and fuckable. So I think we, you know, we still have a lot of cardboard female characters, whether it's the bank teller or the, nice lady in Groundhog's Day. But the fun thing about Groundhog's Day, I'll just throw in since, um, is that I think we're all having an experience now where we go back to something we thought we liked. I also had this with Purple Rain, which is super misogynist, where, and we find out, oh, our criteria for what it means to be a decent human being and treat other human beings decently are so much more refined than they were when all these things came out in the 80s and the 90s that they look really different to us. And it's something that actually fascinates me going back to old works of art and finding out that we're not who we used to be. And I, I love those milestones of going back and finding that pretty and pink and 16 candles are actually super creepy and uh, that we just have different criteria. Yeah. We'll look at a movie and be like, wow, this is everyone in it is white. Remember when Hollywood would just make, wouldn't even have a black friend and, you know, or a black bank teller to point, point a gun at. So, you know, I'm not sure they're well, I'm I, not sure they love complex. Well, well, some of it gets pretty, you know, may, may your work going forward, bring us more of them. And they do exist in some ways. The great has been my favorite pandemic watch with, um, and now because I'm live, I'm going blank on it. And with Elle Fanning as Catherine, the great has been fantastic. Oh, and yeah. yeah. Well, I feel I feel like I'm share this with with our audience here that we would love to um, read any movie summaries you have from past movies 
in addition to the, the fairy tale stories that you should let us know where we can see those fairy tales that you were talking about earlier. Um, I'm gonna go, go over to some audience questions. Um, and there's actually a lot. Yay. Uh, so, all right, I'll just start at the top so then I don't have to make any sort of judgments. Um, I'm a writer, hopelessly dedicated to making a life of it. I've said more than once, I want to be Rebecca Solnit when I grow up. I'm a grown up, but as an author, I respect you immensely. I wonder what kind of advice you'd have for emerging women writers in today's strange new world, uh, particularly how women writers can open up and hold a space for healing from the trauma of the pandemic. A while ago, I started joking, lots of people want to be me now. Nobody wanted to be me for the first 15 years. And I part of what made me Part of why I was able to have a career as a writer, and I hate the word career, part of why I was able to stay home and write books is that I kept my life very simple and frugal and um, lived in that rent-controlled apartment that the book opens with for 25 years in this studio apartment and uh, lived below my means and, um, and just kept writing. And so, but also I think this question... Um, how women writers can open and hold the space for healing from the trauma of the pandemic. And one of the things that's curious for me about the pandemic is how different everybody's experiences are. There, there are things like an earthquake or a bombing where everybody in the city and some, like maybe my house fell down and your house didn't fall down. My house, your house burned down in the wildfires and mine didn't, but we more or less had the same experience. And the pandemic has been so interesting how it's been made unfair by the circumstances that have caused people of color to be far more impacted, you know, and poor people who, you know, who are often the frontline workers who didn't have the option of working from home, you know, the people whose economies crashed when, whether they're musicians or waitresses or bartenders who lost all their income and stuff. And so it's interesting. I feel like part of the reconciliation we have to do is to understand how different people's experiences were of the pandemic. And I know medical people who saw a lot of really horrific deaths up close, other medical people who started doing telemedicine and haven't seen a person in a patient in person for a year, people, you know, people with small kids at home. And, um, you know, so, you know, I also think we have to be really political about why did all these women's lives get crushed? You know, there's a way the story keeps getting told. I wrote a piece about this with the, that's with my guardian and I have to rewrite. Media has kept talking about how the burden of most of the domestic work and childcare mysteriously fell in heterosexual relationships upon the woman rather than male partners shirk their responsibility and fucked up their wives' lives and forced some of them out of their careers and jobs. You know, there, there's been lots of profiles of, oh, poor woman who can't do it all, and no profiles of, this is Bob. Bob decided to destroy his wife's career so that he could spend more time surfing the web. You know, so I also feel like we have to be really careful about how we tell the stories and look at also, you know, and look at some of the villains, not only Trump and... Um, anti-maskers and vax deniers, but, you know, the kind of ongoing misogyny at home and also look at some of the heroes. And one of the best things that happened to me in the pandemic is I joined the anti-sewing squad, which is 
a group founded by the performance artist Christina Wong, and it's mostly women, mostly women of color, particularly Asian-American women who have done some of the most remarkable mutual aid I've ever seen, made about a quarter of a million masks at home so far to give to vulnerable, marginalized, and frontline communities um, out of sheer generosity and also this kind of incredible ferocity against an administration that decided some people's lives didn't matter and some people didn't deserve protection. And so there's, so it's, I think, um, you know, it's hard to talk about the trauma of the pandemic when there's, you know, well, 330 million different pandemics in this country. So, but I think talking about the complexity is part of it. All right, this is from Jane. How well are your important words being heard by women of color? I don't, you know, I never feel like, oh, those people need to listen to me, except, except misogynists who should be forced to listen to my audiobooks for years and years on end. And, um, but, um, and it's also, I got asked years ago, like, what would you tell young feminists? And I'm like, I don't need to tell them anything. I'm learning so much from them. And, as somebody who's been fairly feminist for a while, I found the last 10 years of feminism the most exciting of my life. As young women, many of them women of color have emerged. You know, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectional about 20 years ago. You know, as people taught taught me these things. And I've, I've written, when I write about violence against women, I sometimes write about specific cases involving women of color. I've also written a lot about racial violence in, in the post-war, post-Katrina New Orleans um, and the, kill, the police killing seven years ago, a week from today, of Alex Nieto in San Francisco, of, um, you know, of the Indian wars that were a big part of my book, my second book, Savage Dreams. I haven't been particularly good at interfusing them. So I absolutely have no brief of like, a woman of color can learn things from me. I feel like sometimes I have something to say in the big conversation that feminism is. Um, there's a lot, there are people who have not been nearly as well heard as white, straight white ladies have. And a lot of my job has been to listen and sometimes to use the amplifier that I am to amplify those voices. It's one of the interesting things you get to do as a journalist is to kind of write about people and amplify, you know, amplify voices that aren't being heard enough and um or just you know also do something you do behind it i'm sure you do this in various ways behind the scenes help someone get published or help their book get attention or um you know help help that kind of stuff but you know for sure um okay this is from kim I loved reading about the daily emails you exchanged with your friend and how that chronicled a phase of your journey. I can just imagine the rich treasure trove in your archived emails that could be revisited over time. Can you tell us about your public voice on social media? How your public voice on social media now compares to your email voice at the time? It's, it's really different. I had a funny thing started happening to me about maybe a decade ago where I realized that people, I might, people didn't really write email letters anymore. And I was a great letter writer before email existed. And I jumped into it wholeheartedly. And I had some some email romances I had, you know, where we wrote letters back and forth. 
and uh, you know, intensively. I had one friendship with my wonderful friend Tina Gerhardt, where we wrote almost every day for about a decade. And um, but there was this point at which people, you know, and so I saw email as being like letters, and somehow people started seeing emails as being like texting. And texting is like, you know, and I feel like we went from the 10 finger fluency with a real keyboard to this, you know, your, your fucking thumbs on a fucking phone. And it was so frust, you know, I find it frustrating. And then I voice dictate and lots of very weird and scurrilous things happen on the text. But I feel like in losing the correspondence, and I find the word correspondent which means the person you write to, but also someone who corresponds to you has something in common with you. The loss of correspondence in both, you know, the one that ends in TS and the one that ends in CE has kind of shut down because I'm not a great journal keeper. Some of the ways in which I knew myself more deeply and I really miss it. And I feel like we've all lost it in some ways because anything you do in public or for a group is going to be more performative and more carefully shielded from, you know, the vulnerabilities. And I was looking at your memoir and you talk about the way people would take people to task for not being woken up about race or something. And I think we're all tiptoeing around with fear of getting it wrong. And anything you say to large groups or in public is loaded with that. Whereas the things you, you can, you can try things out and get them wrong with your best friend or your beloved And so I feel like that space has shrunk. And I worry with the pandemic that we haven't even talked, except for the people in our pod, we haven't talked very much, whether we even know how to have those conversations or whether, you know, we'll have them in a different way. But I feel like, you know, I said Trump stranded us in the shallows, but I also feel like the shift from letters to emails to texts and the shift from audiences of one the, and I also coming of age in the 80s and 90s long phone conversations were one of the great joys and solaces of my life and I feel like young woman gave we gave each other reassurance and affirmation that yeah he's a dick yeah yeah your mom is mean yeah it's okay that you feel that way yeah you have value yeah I hear you well you know and that was so important and it's funny how also cell phones have made phones themselves into these kind of very transactional instruments where it's like you know pick up chocolate milk on your way home rather than let's really think about who we want to be and how we felt about what happened on Tuesday You know, so I feel like we've all kind of withered away somehow, you know, to the profit of Mark Zuckerberg and the loss of almost everyone else. And I now that Trump is out, I feel like I, you know, and I've finished um, some of what feel like my public duties, I'm hoping to withdraw and recharge. I also feel like I've been putting out at high volume for particularly for the last decade and I need more input. And so I'm hoping to withdraw and, and take in and go deep in the next several months. Yeah, and I don't think you would be a, a alone in the ways that we've reflected on on loss and yeah, you know, of of conversation and connection and community during the pandemic and ways we've tried to compensate for that and and what we miss. And it, this dovetails with a handful of the questions that hopefully can be the 
or potentially could be the last um, is just um, one is, is there anything you fear we will not learn from the pandemic? And also, I'd love to come out of this conversation with an action. What is one way that you think women can support or uplift other women, especially women in disaster? So I, Rebecca and I, before um, we were doing this public talk, we're talking about the how, you know, this notion of returning to normal is sort of a, a fallacy. And also, there's a lot of versions of normal that didn't suit or benefit um, many people in this country. So um, I guess, yeah, what what is a, a way of going forward um, that isn't just about returning to anything, but uh, that feels actionable and kind and and compassionate. And it's going to be so interesting. And I learned from writing about disasters in that book that came out a while ago, the status quo fears disasters because they disrupt everything. And in that disruption is the possibility of doing things differently. And the status quo is always saying, this is not some social construct that just benefits some of us. This is the eternal inevitable way things must be for all time. And one thing as a climate activist, I find it super exciting what happened with the pandemic because we're constantly told the reason we can't do what climate change requires of us is because we can't change the way we live dramatically and we don't have the money to throw at the problem. And it's like, well, we just threw $3 trillion at a pandemic and we changed the way we live radically. You know, we stopped almost all air, all air travel. We, we did, made a lot of radical changes. So I'm hoping that people come out with a sense, particularly with this new administration and the possibility of doing a lot of other things differently about economic justice and healthcare and, you know, the Green New Deal, et cetera. There's just a sense that these things that were supposed to be graven in stone and unchangeable are broken and we can start afresh. And I, I hate the phrase going back to normal because the, the normal we're in for a lot of us more privileged people meant being really busy and I felt like too busy to be deep, too busy to know ourselves, too busy to take care of the things we, other than ourselves, as well as ourselves in the way that's best. So I'm hoping that there's a kind of stillness that can be quite rich and thoughtful that we'll be able to keep somehow. I've loved seeing cities close off streets to cars and open them up to bicycles and pedestrians and people just live more deeply where they are, whether it means planting a garden or just getting to know the neighborhood well, because they go walking every day because gyms no longer exist and things like that. So, but I'm also hoping, so I'm hoping that people cherish both the things they missed and the things that sustain them. But I also hope that there's a real, like, you know, there's, I interviewed, um, God, I'm forgetting her name. Uh, Giaconda Belli, who was a Sandinista revolutionary and also a poet, talking about the earthquake that somehow shook Nicaragua loose from the Somoza dictatorship. And she said, when you almost lose your life in a night, you lose your fear and you decide that life, you have to live according to what, you know, how you think life should be according to what you believe in. So I think there might be a kind of gutsiness people come out of this with, like we've been, all of us sane people have been very careful about not spreading and catching the disease, but also, you know, a kind of toughness about this is not okay. We can change this. Some of the changes we made about homelessness, where it turns out actually we can put all the homeless people in LA in a hotel. Who knew? You know. So I think that that breaking breaking loose is really interesting, and a lot of people who benefit from the world as it was 
a year ago today will try and get us to go back to that world exactly of consumerism and, you know, a lot of other stuff. And I'm hoping people come out with a capacity to resist it in a lot of ways and to change in a lot of change on the smallest and the largest scales, particularly around climate, which is, you know, a far greater crisis than the pandemic except that it's not easy to see the, you know, to conceptualize the way a pandemic is. And 87 million people a year are dying from fossil fuel directly. But that's hard, you know, like violence against women, it's a dispersed and normalized problem. And, uh, you know, so I'm hoping things like that happen. And, but it's really, there's a kind of discipline, because I also felt that Disasters shake us awake. It's as though we sleepwalk through our lives, locked into our routines, our acceptance of things as they are. A disaster shakes things awake, shakes us awake. And then the tendency often is to fall back asleep. And lots of people want us to fall back asleep, not to feel that sense of community or indignation or possibility or danger. And then it takes discipline to stay awake. So I think that we'll face something like that with this disaster. And it's the same with, you know, people being politically, and Donald Trump became president because we, people were disengaged, didn't notice the danger adequately, didn't turn out, didn't do enough about voter suppression. And, um, you know, and there's different ways you can tell that story. The really obvious one is Hillary Clinton becomes president, which is not a narrative I'm ter- terribly excited about, although a lot of harm wouldn't have been done. But had there been no voter suppression, the Democrat, the Republican Party would have been destroyed years ago, and the Democratic Party would be miles to the left of where it is even now if we had two full adult franchise. And so there's a way in which some of that work has people did wake up because of Trump. People did wake up because of COVID. People did wake up because of Black Lives Matter and then because of George Floyd's murder in public. And it's always interesting. How do we how do we do something with that to keep moving to, you know, a more just and equitable world? And um, and how did I end up talking about this from a book about gender violence, but it does relate because in a sense, it's a book about trying to find a democracy of voices, something I've written about mostly around gender, but that also has to be around race and uh, all those other layers. And your book deals with the ways that the symbolic and the actual intermingle. And so I I think it's all relevant, but I do appreciate um, this conversation. I had so many questions to ask, as I'm sure the audience did as well. Um, but I am so grateful for your, your writing and um, your time. And I just want to thank everyone to, uh, for listening, watching, uh, asking questions. And I guess I'll, that's it from me. <laughs> thank you so much, Carrie. An honor and a joy to hang out with you, even, even via Zoom, even in public. And um you know, I hope we get to do it again sometime and I can't wait to see what you do next. Same here. It was a real honor. Thank you so much. This virtual event featuring Rebecca Solnit and Carrie Brownstein was presented by the Elliott Bay Book Company on March 14th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. 
While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.